Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, your favorite Elixir podcast that sometimes doesn't go on as long as it should and occasionally has guests that are more interesting than the hosts. My name is Desmond Bowie. I am one of your hosts, along with Chris Bell. Hello, Desmond. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Feeling a little, feeling a little boring after some of the great uh, feedback we got from last week's episode with uh, Dave Thomas and Brian Mitchell. It has been very well received, and uh, I always thought it'd be too long, but apparently not. Everyone seems to be really enjoying the length. So, yeah, and we got some compliments on. Um, the content that it was a good discussion and it's one of those funny situations where like oh that means <laughs> that means the normal <laughs> podcast is kind of boring and so thank god we got some interesting people on to spruce things up a bit i think uh we sat on that one for a bit too long right but i'm glad that we shipped it eventually yeah i think it's still relevant i mean the discussion is still important definitely definitely and i honestly would love to have dave back on and carry on that discussion as well maybe in a couple of months i mean we talked about this last year in 2018 when dave was at mpex because he had not the same but similar arguments about how we should be writing elixir and it felt like oh things are going to get stirred up there's going to be all this discussion and some momentum and there was discussion but there was no momentum so Mm. how do we kind of keep this going or don't we keep it going um that's a great question i don't have an answer to but maybe some of our listeners do um and it's also one of those things that i think it's like i don't think it should rest on dave's shoulders either right like it should be a community thing that we can hopefully all spur some like let's see what exploration we can throw from this and see what we can maybe like come up with as a community that might be interesting improvements upon um upon the beam and especially in the like elixir world as well so yeah, I have conversa- I had a conversation with someone the other day about how there's kind of reverence among Elixirists for Erlang programmers, and we sort of receive whatever they give us, and we uh, take it as gospel because they've been doing this for longer, or there's just kind of that's how our, our cultures are interacting. And there isn't a lot of, I don't want to say thinking for ourselves among Elixirists, but I remember when I was in the Ruby community, there was a certain uh, cavalierness about Rubius, like they were willing to just challenge everything, reinvent everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of glad we don't have that exactly, but I think we could use a little more um, gung-ho-ness, a little daring do, if I may. (laughs) Daring do. I don't think I've ever heard that expression before, but I appreciate it. I thought it was a British expression. Is it? I don't, I don't know, unless I'm missing something here, but I don't believe so. Um, But I agree with you. I think like having a bit more forward thinking in this community could be really interesting and i think like done a really good job of like establishing it building on this great foundation like basically like coming up with a really really interesting language that's really well suited for some great like problems we're dealing with today and then like where else can we take it you know and hopefully i know we talk a lot about like elixir being very stable and mature and being quote-unquote done but like you know, it, maybe maybe there is some room for innovation there, and maybe we can take it and move it further. And maybe that means like it's a different beam-based language as well. Who knows? And it's one thing to say the language itself is done, but how we write it is an ongoing story. Definitely, definitely. So uh, on that note about people looking at the Elixir community, what what else is new in the Elixir community, Desmond, from your side? 
uh is this a prompt this this was a prompt it was probably one of the worst prompts i've ever done as well (laughs) so um i was thinking about how you needed to introduce this world of new trainings that we have New trainings, that's right. So those of you that have been uh, following the podcast for a bit know that Chris and I are starting a Elixir trainings initiative. Um, we are taking we're taking it to the road. We've conducted a bunch of trainings for Elixir at MPEX conferences in the past, and um, we want to go out and do trainings elsewhere so people don't have to attend conferences. So we're looking at uh, a bunch of cities that are not New York, are not San Francisco, are not Seattle, and are not Denver, places that already have conferences. We want to go to someplace new where maybe people don't have as much access to this and do a series of two-day trainings. One day is um, a manager's breakfast slash symposium where we talk more about like the operational aspects of adopting Elixir, hiring a team, training them up. What does it look like to use this technology in production? And then a separate day of a workshop for engineers. So we're proud to say that our schedule is now up on our website. So be sure to check that out. We're going to five cities in North America, Chicago, Atlanta, Portland, Austin, Toronto, Ontario. And, um, did I say Atlanta? Yeah, you Is said that five? Atlanta. Yeah. Okay. I said five, right? Yeah. Great. Well, if you're in one of those cities or if you're nearby, that's awesome. Please visit our website for more information. Tickets are now on sale. We are looking for some locations. So if your company is interested in uh, letting us use our conference room for a day, please get in touch. We're happy to put your logo on our website to uh, express our thanks for um, hosting us. But um, yeah, please check that out. We'd love to see you and meet you and tell you a little more about elixir i'm excited about doing all that flying weirdly there's a lot <laughs> we, of cities i haven't been to so uh it'd be fun which cities have you been to any of the cities um i've been to portland uh-huh uh that's about it <laughs> so yeah I, it's not like i haven't traveled around the u.s but i'm excited about uh getting out getting around showing people a bit more in about elixir and hopefully training a few more people and showing them the language as well so we've had some really successful training classes in the past um especially at mpex uh and we'll be riffing on that kind of theme here uh basing this training off something that we've done previously but then that whole kind of CTO and engineering leadership one could be really valuable for you if you're, uh, you know, if you're thinking about like changing languages or you've been looking at Elixir for a while, but you, you're not really sure if it's the right fit for you. Um, I think that can be a great kind of discussion that we can have. And hopefully Desmond and I can share some of our experiences. You know, we have uh, in the past written many production apps, taken many companies from different languages to Elixir. Um, so I think we've got a lot of kind of experience there that we can we can share with you. So and hopefully with your leadership. So if you're excited about this, but your boss is blocking you, maybe tell him to check it out. So um, tell him or her to check it out. Sorry. Correction. Cool. So uh, we will post a link to that in the show notes. But um, that is coming starting in October. Uh all the dates are on our website. I won't list them here, but that'll be running October, November, and December. So we're looking forward to that. Cool. And a little bit more community news before we get into today's show. 
Um, so we're actually going to be at ElixirConf as well. And hopefully this podcast will come out before the conference. Otherwise, this will be slightly embarrassing. Um, but we will be there in force with stickers. When I say in force, I mean myself and Desmond. So it's not often you get both of us in the same room. So uh, if you're there and you see us or you hear our voices, because you might not know what we look like, please come up and find us. Um, we have stickers we would love to say hi. We would love to hear about, like, if you listen to this show, it, it would just be great to meet some more listeners. Um, and then we're also going to be hosting a happy hour with MPEX as well. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled for that, I guess. We'll be having some more news soon there. Yeah, we haven't done a lot of planning on that, but we've done a party <laughs> every year so far, and it usually comes off all right. So yeah. uh, it's just a matter of finding the right pinball bar in town so um i think there's a there's usually a conference app right where people like chat with each other we'll post a thing on that for sure uh we might tweet about it while we're at the conference that'll be kind of a game day thing but that's going to be friday night that friday night a lot of people fly out um right after the conference so if you do you're going to miss the party sorry but if you don't then um be sure to come and hang out with us. Yeah, I, I will tab. be flying out literally straight after the party, so uh, on a red eye. So I'm hoping that the the night out helps with the the red eye flight. You know, on the contrary, you're going to keep the party going on the airplane <laughs> and take it all the way back to New York. That's right. <laughs> it's going to be great. Cool. So should we get on with the show? Let's get on with the show. I always want to do this big reveal, but like every time you've read the show notes and you've probably seen that we actually have a guest today. Um, so today on Elixir Talk, we're lucky to be joined by Dave, Dave Lucia. Lucia, Lucia I got it right the second time. Thank you. Uh, I should know. Um, Dave is VP of Engineering at SimpleBet, who are a firm here in New York. Dave and I know each other pretty well from the Elixir community over the last few years. Um, so really excited to have Dave here on the show today. So welcome, Dave. Thank you for having me, Chris and Desmond. It's good to have you on here. So Dave, so VP of Engineering at SimpleBet, do you want to tell us a little bit about what SimpleBet is? Absolutely. Uh, so SimpleBet is a sports betting company. Uh, we are based out of New York. Uh, sports betting is really interesting right now because in 2018, uh, a federal law was repealed called PASPA. Never get that right. I think it's PASPA. Uh, what that is is a federal law that allows states to make sports betting legal. Uh, it was challenged by New Jersey, and now individual states are drafting legislation which allows them uh, to make sports betting legal in particular states. What's really interesting about that is sports betting has been around for a very long time. The oldest sports betting company right now, I believe it's Ladbrokes, they've been around since 1863. And the technology in sports betting is also from 1863. <laughs> uh, a lot of Java-based SOAP XML services. Um, there's some more interesting, innovative companies out there. Um, but the space has not innovated very much in the last several decades because it's mostly existed in Europe um, and it's quite saturated market. People have been betting there since you know the 1800s, and so um, people are used to particular uh, ways of betting. You know, betting on Team A or Team B. You know, is Team A going to beat Team B by 20 points? Uh, and what's interesting about the U.S. market is <sighs> Americans are. Uh, you know, they're not satisfied by waiting for an entire game. They need that instant gratification. 
And what's really cool is, you know, it's an opportunity to build new types of sports betting markets, uh, particularly in-game markets that bet on uh, discrete occurrences like every at-bat in a baseball game or, you know, is Tom Brady going to throw a touchdown this drive? Um, And what SimpleBet is doing is we're, you know, automating that by um, taking these markets that are in-game, they're live, and we're writing software using machine learning and data science approaches that um, can calculate the odds of these more interesting markets. So when I was in high school, I had a friend who was the sort of guy who would be like, I bet you $5 the next car that drives by is white. Is this the sort of thing that that would, that would support? Yeah, actually, we employ that friend. Um, and <laughs> that's exactly what we do. <laughs> Well, he lost a lot of money, so <laughs> five dollars exactly. That wasn't the only thing he bet on. <laughs> nice. Um, so, so Dave, you uh, so SimpleBet is an Elixir shop. I'm guessing from, that's right. Yeah, it's Elixir, Rust, and Python actually. Very interesting. But before we dig too much into that, do you want to tell us a bit about how you got into um, Elixir and a bit more about your background as well? Sure. Yeah. So I started my career out at Bloomberg, which was a great place to start my career. Um, originally worked for a uh, trading platform. Uh, the Bloomberg uh, terminal is a uh, financial information machine. Uh, <laughs> it, it does so much, but I, I specifically worked for a trading platform there uh, and moved over to Bloomberg.com where you know Node.js was the hotness at the time. And we relaunched uh, Bloomberg.com in 2014 using Node.js and our proprietary single-page app framework called Bloomberg Brisket. Uh, maybe not as well-known as React, but uh, we were very excited about it at the time. Uh, it was based off of Backbone, um, made by a very smart man named Wayne Warner, a uh, good friend of mine. And you know, after we launched the website... Um, Got into Node for a while, uh, got pretty bored of Node and sick of the challenges that Node kind of forced you to solve. Um, my manager was like, oh, this language Elixir is really cool. You know, pre- Previously, they were Ruby shop. And so I guess Elixir had gotten on his radar and we were trying to build an imagery sizing service. And he's like, it'd be really cool if we built this in Elixir. And so I learned what Elixir was, you know, at a hackathon, I built a... Uh, Slack bot with Elixir and uh, never got to build that image resizing service. So I was really bummed out. Um, however, I learned that uh, this guy, Josh Topolsky, uh, formerly involved with The Verge and Vox, uh, he had joined Bloomberg and was uh, the driving force behind that relaunch I talked about. Um, and he started a new company after he left Bloomberg uh, called The Outline. And I saw a post on Twitter from him about looking for Elixir engineers. So I, I jumped on it, reached out, um, and joined the outline. The outline is uh, an online magazine, is the way we like to describe it. Um, very liberal uh, news publication focused on more offbeat sort of news and uh, more long-form stories. Um, I think the outline was really interesting because it took a design-first approach. It really challenged what was... Um, what the, the open web is capable of in terms of design. We built a very like Snapchat-like experience for consuming news stories. Um, and the whole entire site was written in Elixir. We built a content management system uh, that was, I think, quite innovative in a, 
a number of ways, uh, all backed by Elixir. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I got my start and really fell in love with it and became very passionate about it. That's where I think I met uh, the two of you through the outline and the uh, greater New York City Elixir uh, community. And it's been a really fun ride since then. Nice. Yeah. Uh, the outline has been a big supporter of us at MPEX over the years, actually. Mm-hmm. So like, shout out to them who actually then got acquired by Bustle, right? That's right. So uh, Ivar Vong, who uh, is and was the uh, CTO of the outline, a very good friend of mine, um, he chose Elixir because, you know, he came from Ruby background. He's like, Ruby's great. You can, uh, you know, build our website uh really quickly. Uh, there's a lot of flexibility there, but, um, didn't quite have, you know, what he was looking for in terms of scale. And when he found Elixir, he's like, this is what I want to build this company with. Um, and yeah, I think it ended up being a really great choice for us. They got acquired by bustle and they're doing some really interesting things over there now. If I remember correctly, wasn't there like a stat about your page views at the outline? that we should talk about because it's a really good stat. Wasn't it like two servers or something, a million to page? Is this, is this not true? Uh, yeah, Are we so finding out that this is a false? <laughs> no, 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 that is true. So the outline was, so actually that was a conversation that you, uh, myself and James Fish had oh, yeah, in yeah. LA, yeah. Uh, you know, right before MPEX LA, maybe it was the first MPEX LA actually. Yeah. And we were at, um, was it Hannah? Yeah. Han- so Hannah's house, at- yeah. 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 So we're at Hannah's house and uh, James, uh, myself and you we were talking about the outline and James was like really captivated by the fact that we were able to, you know, scale to millions of users a month just on two Heroku dinos. <laughs> I think he called me Dino Dave. Yeah. Da- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I called him Dave Double Dinos actually, was. which was a okay. fantastic nickname. Just, you know. Yeah, so James was really captivated by that uh, for whatever reason. Uh, But it was really cool that we were able to, excuse me, scale the outline with just two Heroku dinos. Um, I've been begging Ivar to write this blog post, but maybe it's a good time to talk about it. Uh, We took this approach that we called the semi-stateful application. So for every user on the site, we'd spawn a gen server. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in order to do interesting things like, uh, you know, serve them relevant content um, and, you know, make sure that they're only seeing new things. We're not serving the same thing over and over. Um, we had this event log that, you know, you'd see a post on the site um, and it would just send a message to a gen server saying, hey, user one, two, three saw this, uh, this post. There's no login. So it's all anonymous, right? Um, and so we would kept, keep these gen servers long running and it would just keep this event log and we could do interesting things like, okay, you've seen uh, these set of posts, you might like this one. So we'd put it in their infinite scroll. Um, and then Heroku cycles their dinos every 24 hours, right? So it just goes away, but we don't care. Right. Uh, it's semi-stateful. Uh, it's not a bad experience if you see the same post again, um, but it's pretty cool that you can just keep that state in the application and... Um, the first time we actually deployed it with that, you know, gen server per user, I was really afraid of memory just spiking and us having to roll it back. Uh, turns out that didn't make any difference. You know, we're seeing millions of users a month and um, that just didn't matter. It was just, you know, maybe it's a few kilobytes per user, but no big deal. Mm-hmm. So would, would you say per user, because uh, as you just said, no one logs into the outline. It's kind of like a... Almost a session. Yeah. 
right? Like you're tracking an anonymous user while they're on the site and then they go away. And then if they come back, do you remember it was them or is that considered, or is that a new gen server? No, we would remember them. So, you know, we cook you in, uh, the way it works with Heroku, there's something called, I think it's called session pinning, Mm -hmm. right? So it would route you to the same, uh, instance that you were, uh, that it was serving you requests before. Um, and so we'd assign you some sort of uh, session ID or whatever that was cookied. And we just use that as uh, we use a registry and would look up your gen server and uh, serve you that event log. It was really cool. Hmm. Wow. Nice. Very cool. Um, I mean, that's a great application of Elixir, first and foremost. Like, w- was that with some caching as well? I'm guessing to handle that much page load or were you, oh no we that was hitting the db like every time or? oh we hit the db almost oh so we had okay we used concash mm-hmm. uh by um sasha mm-hmm. uh sasha's concash library and we used that so we put that in front of our db queries but for the most part every single user was hitting the database and ecto with its uh you know query cache optimizations we were serving requests better than all of our competitors. Right, right, right. I remember that as well, where there's like, I've seen like different stats from news publications and the outline was consistently in the top five or something, right? Mm-hmm. It was like ridiculously fast at getting a page load. Yeah, there's actually, I think his name is Michael Donahoe, Donahue. Uh, he built this really cool website called the Article Performance Leaderboard. And we were consistently in like the top five for, you know, I think it was using web page test to benchmark uh, articles from each uh, news publication against each other. And we were always in the top, you know, we, we were doing things to, you know, on top of Elixir, like, you know, font optimizations and, you know, trying to keep our JavaScript CSS bundles really low. But even without that, taking that aside, you know, we were serving pages in like 10 milliseconds. So mm. super, super fast. So um, I wanted to get into this a bit because sure. we've been known on this podcast to uh, lob softballs at people <laughs> and at each other. So, um, in the interest of being a little contrarian, um, why was this so fast? Like, I mean, you're basically just reading data. There's not a lot of computation going on. Like, is this uh, a common use case? Is this like kind of a basic use case? I mean, is it fast because this is a sweet platform or is it because this particular application didn't have a lot of computational needs? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, yeah, we weren't like, um, folding proteins on the on the back end or anything you know it's not uh well we'll talk about simple bet but it's uh not as computationally intensive as what i'm doing now but it also wasn't trivial like we built a pretty interesting cms um for every single article uh it was parsing uh, a text body uh with xml inside of it it was then like making database calls and rewriting the the body to flush out embeds. It was also serving ads. We built our own ad server uh, that was serving first party ads. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't trivial what it was doing on the back end, but it I, I think it was pretty common for a news publication. I think in fact, I think we were doing more than most news publications. Most news publications are not serving their own ads. Um, but at the same time, it, it's not as complicated as. Um, you know, serving machine learning models like I'm doing now in my current job. So this is also server-rendered Phoenix as well, right? That's right. So you get some like really nice performance gains with that just alone as well, right? Yeah, actually, I think, I don't know many companies using Phoenix in that way. Everyone likes to build JSON APIs and 
React SPAs or Vue SPAs or whatever they like to use. Um, <laughs> I see Desmond uh, giving a big thumbs down. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we were one of the few companies that I know of that was really using Phoenix for its HTML and it's lightning fast. Mm. It's like, I, I think I've said this before, but you might be delighted by going back to the traditional rendering HTML on the server side. Mm-hmm. I, I, I believe that's like because of the IO data list optimizations as well, right? So we actually worked very briefly with Dockyard and got a chance to work with Chris McCord at the outline. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that maybe I'm misquoting him, but I remember him telling me that that wasn't as big of a deal as he originally thought it was. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I can't really speak to that. And maybe I'm misquoting it. So sorry, Chris, if this comes back to you, but um, I think it's just more about the beam and uh, you know how the beam optimizes those types of operations. Um, it's just really fast by default and we really didn't have to put so much effort into optimizing. I mean, we used Concache. That was it. Like we weren't doing any sort of, um, CDN level caching outside of like, you know, long lived assets, everything else on the outline was server rendered and we never worried about performance. Could I side rant here for a second? Sure. Uh, cause something I see on the internet a lot is, uh, particularly with like beam versus jvm comparisons is uh the beam is slow erlang's slow it's not it's not slow like (laughs) computers are really fast like (laughs) it's pretty good at taking numbers and calculating them and then in certain situations where like the whole point is to max throughput of some calculation through your cpu like benchmarks are different um but to extrapolate that one use case to like, oh, this whole technology is slow is disingenuous. So uh, if you see that, I don't know if people listening to this podcast are going to hear that, and, you know, real, let it sink in. But like that always kind of got my goat. No, I don't blame you, Desmond. I, I also saw someone uh, write something recently I'll try and put in the show notes, which was, Yes, you can write similar performance um, programs in, say, something like Ruby and Elixir or even Node and Elixir, right? But like that isn't necessarily where it shines, right? What you're talking about here is serving concurrent users and doing it at a, a pretty decent scale, right? That's where it starts to shine as well. And like not seeing negative performance in like impacts of doing that. And they're having to use like CDNs in front of all of your content as a result and doing like, I remember I built a new site a long time ago. Uh, I think it was like 2012 in Rails and it got to the front page of Reddit on for some very popular news story that happened in the UK and all of the all of the servers went down like obviously that happened and there was only like 11 minutes of downtime and we were really happy about that but like still that <laughs> those 11 minutes are like the most popular like moments of that news publication's life and that was mm-hmm. with varnish in front of it that was with like all manner of like memcache caches, like just so Rails could handle that much content. So I don't know if you guys like follow any political news and not making political comment, but there's this a website called The Drudge Report mm-hmm. and the outline wrote uh, an article that was slightly controversial about Justin Timberlake. And it was at the top of Drudge Report. And all of a sudden we saw this massive spike in traffic. Um, like, I think it was like the single most traffic we've seen in a single day. Um, again, just didn't matter. Like it, it, it performed just fine. Like the beam just scaled to it. No problem. And 
Uh, we were like watching with amazement, but uh, we didn't have to make any modifications, throw any extra servers at it. It was just fine. Yeah, that, that it's. I think it's that kind of thing where it's like people are like, oh yeah, it's slow against the JVM. And you're like, okay, well, let's look at like what Stop the World Garbage Collection actually looks like in practice when you're serving that many users and what the actual like P95 and like P99 is on the serving time as a result, you know? And like, it's very interesting to see those comparisons. Um, I don't, I'm hoping that not too many people go away from this and are like, well, I should never use any of those pieces of tech because obviously it's always a, it's always a decision that you should be looking at as a team. And it's much bigger than just like, this is faster than this in these circumstances. Right. But, um, at the same time, I think like, as you've proven, like you're building on top of a very interesting, solid, reliable piece of technology that clearly like is able to take what you're throwing at it with, like and just breeze through it and that's on what a lot of people consider to be not the way to host it as well right right yeah i mean i think what we were doing is was very different from the norm everyone's moving to statically rendered pages you know pushing to uh i don't know s3 like serving or something like that you know um the industry is the news publication industry is moving in a very different direction um and we're like let's move it all server side mm. Um, that was a little bit radical. I don't know, maybe too radical. Who knows? <laughs> I love the idea now that there's like the New York Times just rewrote everything in like uh, Node and GraphQL, right? Like mm-hmm. the their big GraphQL shop. And I, I just I like to think about the amount of Node.js processes that it now takes to like serve a render a bunch of React or something to serve out all of those pages. It must be absolutely like insane for some of those new sites. So, but that's a that's a side rant as well. So the last thing I'll say about this, and then we can uh, move on from performance, is uh, a client asked me recently, I was showing them pattern matching and function heads because they were new to the language and they had an if statement. They said, well, I hear that if statements are not um, not idiomatic, so what's the way to do it? I said, oh, well, you know, write this function, but then have it take nil as the argument and then uh, short circuit. He said, well, oh, isn't it like, what's the performance hit of having the VM dispatched these different functions? And it was like, dude, that's not your problem. (laughs) (laughs) That is a hundred percent never your problem. So just write it and go to bed happy because your code's easy to read. I I saw someone say something the other day, which was like, Oh, well, what's the performance impact of like importing this package? And I was thinking like, I can't remember the last time I even thought about that. Yeah, I had a new, like, a junior developer join the team who, like, had prior Elixir experience. And he's like, oh, yeah, you don't want a pattern match like that. It's really going to be expensive. I was like, how expensive do you think it is? He's like, oh, yeah, you you can't do it that way. And I'm like, benchmark it. And he's like, oh, it's microseconds. Yeah, right, 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 right. And pretty much your business isn't going to die because of that, I'm sure. Well, maybe it it, it does a simple bet, which leads us on nicely to uh, that. Oh, wow. Nice segue. Thank you. Experienced podcaster here. Who's who's, uh, the better segue artist? Is it uh, you, Chris, or is it you, Desmond? I think after my earlier performance, I think we've got to say Desmond. Mm. Yeah, but the British accent makes up several points. Thank you. Yeah, I'll give you that. Um, So let's talk about SimpleBet. So Dave, you're now VP of Engineering at SimpleBet. You gave us a bit of an intro to it earlier. but um, And it sounds like you're solving some pretty interesting kind of computational problems there. So... You said the stacks Elixir, Rust, and Python, right? That's right. Um, so do you want to tell us a bit more about uh, where Elixir is used and what kind of problems it solves? Yeah, so where to begin? Um, 
A lot of data science and machine learning is all Python based, right? Any data science, data scientist, I think you talk to uh, uses NumPy, SciPy, you know, all of those Python packages that have, um, you know, so much time dedicated into them. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, uh, NumPy and you know those computation intensive packages are all backed by Fortran. Fun fact: that's why they're so fast, not because they're Python. Anyways. Um, we have uh, a quite a sizable data science team at uh, at SimpleBet, um, and the reason being is you know our core product and what we think makes us interesting is we want to deliver. You know our ultimate goal is to build innovative betting experiences to uh, consumers, right? So you know team A versus team B is fine, but you know being able to bet in game on every drive in a an NFL game I think is a lot more compelling and a lot more interesting to uh, U.S. fans. Um, in order to do that, you need uh, speed. You know, if there's a drive, you know, you have to be able to react to every play and update the odds. Otherwise, people are going to take advantage of you know those prices that you're offering. Um, and you know, going to those prices, uh, you know, the odds of each market. Um, that's what enables these innovative uh, UIs. You can't build um, an experience where someone is betting on every drive without having. Uh, those odds available. And what's really interesting in the European and, and US market is everyone does that with humans. Mm -hmm. So there's, I mean, that, that's not fully true. You know, some people are using simulations and a little bit of machine learning, but for the most part, everyone is using human labor in order to set the odds of these markets. And what we're doing has actually never been done before, which is to fully automate generating those odds. Um, so if we're talking about those traditional markets of betting on team A versus team B, uh, what our pricing engine does is it says, okay, team A's probability is uh, point, you know, it's 40% and team B is 60%. Um, and the services that we write, they rely on historical and real-time data. Um, so the models, they take into account, you know, the performance of players and teams, over you know years or decades worth of, of games, um, but then we also had to ingest you know real time data in order to know what's happening in the game and reconstruct uh, the sport you know what is happening in that game the scoreboard who's on base for a baseball game for example all from incremental data that's coming over this feed and we have to do that for many games all at once that are all concurrently happening over all the different sports that we offer and that's what Elixir is really good at. So we can leverage the entire Elixir ecosystem uh, with its process uh, message passing based ecosystem to um, model these events, these sporting events as processes. And then, you know, because we need speed, um, we use Rust and we rebuild our models in Rust and we just delegate to this Rust code. We call it as just normal Elixir function calls. Um, that are implemented as NIFs, native implemented functions. Um, and then that does that hardcore machine learning and turns over pricing in microseconds or in the worst case, milliseconds, um, which is truly remarkable in my opinion. And, and like I said, this has never been done before in this industry. So it's quite interesting as a, as a problem to solve. So I have a question. Uh, we hear about NIFs sometimes in the community. And I mean, being able to write a NIF in Rust is fairly new. Um, in the past, you had to write them in C. And <clears throat> what's my question? Uh, how do you know you, when you need a NIF? 
I mean, we just got done saying, like, the language isn't that slow, but there are times when you need to drop down and pick up speed. So what does that what does that uh, process of going there look like? So I think for most people, you almost never need an if. Mm-hmm. Like, we have a very specialized use case, but for, you know, your average application, and if you're building the outline, you know, I can think of maybe a few examples, but NIF is not really something you need to reach for. When you do need a NIF, uh, I think actually Discord has a really good example. So Discord had this blog post from a month or two ago. They had, you know, this problem where they're trying to keep track. I think it was the number of users in a channel and updating that list of users was very expensive. It was taking a lot of time. Um, and so I think they just pretty much like built a hash map mm-hmm. and they just delegated to Rust um, to keep that hash map of users in Rust and leverage, you know, the speed of that data structure in that lower level language. Um, and they saw like orders of magnitude uh, performance increases by delegating that to uh, a language that was more computationally um, efficient. Um, they leverage something called resource arcs, which is a really interesting concept uh, in NIFs. And, and maybe I'm getting too ahead of myself. Um, you know, you asked about uh, when we should use a NIF, and I think you should use a NIF when you've maxed out the performance of the beam and you either need to leverage a library like a crypto library, an XML library, some sort of parsing library that uh, doesn't exist in the beam VM and would be either prohibitively expensive to implement in Elixir um, or is just, you know, widely available as like a C or Rust library that you can just pull off the, the shelf, uh, use Rustler and the C bindings to um, interact with the beam and then just use that. Um, our use case is very particular. So we think that the combination of Rust and Elixir, uh, we've been calling it the dream stack. <laughs> It's a ridiculous name, and uh, I think I'm unveiling it right now. So, uh, you heard it here first, folks. The dream stack. (laughs) The dream stack. (laughs) Copyright 2019. Elixir's number one podcast. Anyways, uh, it's very interesting because you know the Beam is really good at concurrency and fault tolerance and high availability, and it's not as good relatively um, to. Desmond's earlier point about number crunching and dealing with computationally computationally expensive tasks. Rust, on the other hand, is really good at that. And so if you can delegate to Rust for those tasks um, and machine learning and, you know, churning through lots of data and and computing, um, you know, signals and distributions on the fly, um, if you can marry the two, uh, it's a really powerful combination. And for our use case of trying to produce the odds of sports betting markets in real time in microseconds, it works flawlessly. Mm. So did you try and implement all of this in Elixir before you went to the NIFs and into Rust? or Partially. Mm. Um, so we did do some prototyping in Elixir for certain things. Um, you know, there's a lot of different types of uh, ways to approach data science. Um, there's stochastic simulations, there's things like neural nets, there's, um, you know, Bayesian types of prediction functions. Um, for some of the simulation based stuff, we're like, okay, you know, how bad could the performance be in Elixir? Uh, for these simulations, these, it's Monte Carlo simulation, right? Um, you typically have to run these things 
hundreds of thousands of times potentially, or tens of thousands really, um, that takes a lot of time. Like you're talking about maybe minutes in some cases. Mm -hmm. So it's very slow. And in Rust, it's like a millisecond. It's Mm -hmm. no big deal. And can you run those concurrently 10,000 times or does it have to be sequential? So this is a very interesting topic that I think is, maybe it is intuitive, but it's not something you think of, uh, you know, initially. And it's like, it's like, oh, well, you have to run it 100,000 times, just run it in 100,000 threads or, you know, at least do it by the number of CPU cores you have, right? Uh, the challenging part of using Rust in any NIF is that you're effectively competing with CPU with the beam, right? Um, and this brings up the topic of schedulers and dirty NIFs and CPU-bound versus IO-bound NIFs. Um, you generally, when you're delegating to a NIF, don't want to use concurrency because you're going to impact the availability of the rest of the system. Right, So if I spawned 100,000 different threads, for example, which is generally a bad idea, but if I did that, um, I'd probably take down everything else. Mm-hmm. So why not use uh, set up a cluster for this? Because I hear one of the great use cases of Umbrella apps um, is you could deploy a specific app to a specific machine in your cluster, a machine that's dedicated to a um, specific task, For example, if you have a bunch of NIFs that are CPU bound and you don't want them to affect your web handling, uh, spin up that app over here on your nice big um, CPU machine and then run all your NIFs there. So that way, even though that CPU is pegged, I mean, you're still competing with resources among all those NIFs and there's just finite finite CPU limit. But uh, then at least that way, you're not fighting the rest of the beam for all of your other processes, your web processes, maybe you have background processes, et cetera. But now you've got distributed system problem, right? <laughs> well, so now you've got like a network in the middle. Right. Which probably has its own problems if you're trying to get like microsecond performance, I'm guessing. Yeah, but I think Desmond's getting at something that I think is correct. And it's like, how do you isolate this uh, complexity, right? Mm. Um, and that's something that we definitely strive to do. Uh, but with that being said, you can't, truly isolate everything right these you know these machine learning algorithms don't exist in a vacuum you know we have to transport data to them right we have to ingest real-time feeds we need to talk to a database to get the historical data needed to um, compute you know these models Um, and so no matter what unless you're doing like every single baseball game had its own server you can't completely isolate everything Mm -hmm. Um, and yes, we're like separating things, you know, web serving versus, you know, these more backend like stateful systems. Uh, we do isolate them, but, uh, you can only go so far. Mm. So you have to be very, very careful about how you isolate them, how you transfer data, um, and how any sort of computation that you're doing, you know, you have to be very mindful of how that might affect the rest of the system. Um, so I think it's a good time to talk about dirty NIFs, which if yeah, you've sure. talked about uh, NIFs at all, and if you understand them a bit, you might have co- come across this topic. Um, so the main challenge with writing NIFs is that, again, they, they run outside of the context of the Beam ecosystem, right? So the scheduler uh, for the Beam, it's doing that preemption. Every single process, it gets to execute a certain number of in- instructions that are counted as reductions, again, then gets preempted and moved to the back of the queue and then something else gets its turn 
And at a very high level, and I probably butchered that to some degree, that's how the beam works is we've got these schedulers, you know, one per core usually, um, and they're just, you know, picking up processes, executing some instructions, and then kicking it off and doing it again with something else. Um, when you call a NIF, a NIF is executing native code. It's executing C, Rust, assembly, whatever. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't communicate back to the scheduler, you know, how many reductions, how many instructions have I executed in this amount of time? So the scheduler doesn't have a very good way of knowing, should I preempt this process? And even if it could, um, you know, there's not way of like pausing execution inside of a, a C function. Um, so there's always been this problem of how do I write these NIFs so that they don't impact the scheduler. And usually the general rule of thumb is if you keep your execution time under one millisecond, you won't really impact these schedulers. And so you can employ techniques like yielding back to the scheduler. So let's say I have um, something that takes 100 milliseconds to run. You know, roughly every one millisecond, I'll you know execute something incrementally save my state in something called a resource arc, which is actually more of a Rust-specific thing, but um, basically save a reference to memory mm -hmm. that is stored as a Erlang ref or Elixir ref, and then the next time I call it, passing that ref, which is a pointer to memory. Uh, so you could, with that way, you can resume execution in between, um, you know, each of these runs, right? And then that whole thing adds up to that 100 milliseconds worth of time. Uh, and that at least allows the schedulers to um, act in a normal way where they're not being impacted um, so much. So if um, if your uh, NIF crashes during execution, does that bring down the scheduler or the VM? Or how does that propagate up to the system? Yeah, if your NIF crashes, the entire VM crashes. <laughs> that's <laughs> so that's another bad. reason not to do this. <laughs> yeah. Right? But that's why writing it in Rust is so compelling. Mm. Because, you know, the the great thing about Rust, and Rust is a very interesting language. I, I learned it here at SimpleBed and um, became decently proficient at it. If you write safe code in Rust, and by the way, unsafe code is code that, you know, violates some set of, of rules that could cause a program to crash or, you know, do something else that's bad. As long as you write safe code, uh, unsafe code, you literally have to annotate as unsafe. If you write safe code, it's guaranteed not to crash. It's guaranteed not to um, perform some subset of bad behavior. Um, and so that makes it a really good choice for implementing these NIFs because you guarantee if you're using this that even if your program panics, the Rust code will catch it and it won't take it on the VM. It'll just send a message back to Elixir saying, hey, something bad happened. Do something about it. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So uh, is, uh, is there any more to these NIFs? Like, is, uh, so you talked about um, dirty scheduling. Is, uh, are you making sure you're yielding back to the VM then every one millisecond or... Well, actually, I didn't talk. I was actually leading up to dirty scheduling, so thank you. Uh, so that yielding is just normal scheduling, but dirty NIFs is where um, it's a way of saying, hey, I'm an IO-bound or CPU-bound native function. Um, I'm going to take longer than one millisecond. Mm -hmm. So what it does is you can specify um, in your VM args or whatever that configuration is for uh, the beam, it configures since like OTP 18 or something like that. Um, a way of defining extra threads that only execute dirty NIFs. 
And that takes it outside of the execution of those normal schedulers. Mm. And so that's a way of getting around that ecosystem and making it a bit more safe. Now, it does come with extra overhead. So you don't want to just like always use dirty NIFs because what ends up happening is with dirty NIFs, because it's moving to a different thread, you now have to do um, mutex locking or semaphores or something to transfer data from one thread to another. Uh, Almost in every case, you're you're doing that thread transfer. So it does come at a cost, but since, you know, that innovation OTP, you can uh, solve that problem in a new way, which is really cool. And are you writing like direct Rust code? Is there like a library that you use to help that interrupt between Elixir and Rust? Yeah, so that's Rustler. And Rustler is an amazing library. You know, it always sounded so cool to me when I was at the outline. I'm like, I want to do something with Rust and Rustler. And I never knew I was like anything practical that... um, I could build that would be compelling thought about making some like image manipulation thing, but was never motivated enough to do it. Um, Rustler is so easy to use. Mm -hmm. So I, you basically just specify in rust. I know I want to export this function as a NIF and it has a very particular signature. You register them. Um, and then it has ways of encoding and decoding data from Elixir to rust and, you know, back. Right? And so it's very easy to specify the data you want to use. You can transfer things like structs and maps. And you know, in Rust, you just say, I want you know this struct to be an Elixir struct, and you give it the name. Um, and that interop is really seamless. And so the level of effort to write a NIF and to consume Elixir data structures is so surprisingly easy. Um, when I first learned how to do it, I was like, is that it? Like, it it's really, um, really a great library that was put together. Um, and I, I, unfortunately, I only know them by their handles. I don't know their names of uh, the main contributors to Wrestler. I, I've contributed myself a bit, but it's a really interesting library. Awesome. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well today um, for all those folks who are interested in dabbling in this as well. So does your Rust source code go in your Elixir source code? Like in the same file? Is that how it works? Did you put chocolate in my peanut butter? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the way that we've structured it internally, uh, it makes a lot of sense to, or at least for us, to split that code out as its own library. So, you know, we publish it to a private uh, hex package, but that Rust code is in the same code base as, you know, the Elixir wrapper Mm -hmm. that, you know, goes around the Rust code. Mm -hmm. Um, but it has been easier for us to separate that just because you could run the Rust tests in our Circle CI, um, CI platform, you know, in isolation and develop it and, you know, configure releases that way. So, yeah, you can intermingle those code bases in a really easy way, you know, just put in a different folder. Um, but we, we've chosen to split it out into its own library. There's actually a time when we just commingled it. Um, but over time, we've decided it made more sense to split it out. But that library is a hex package with Rust code inside of it, right? That's right. Right, right, right. So then you're just calling Elixir code that actually goes down into Rust at some point. Yeah, and so Rustler, actually, part of Rustler, it's like divided into about like between three and five different packages. Uh, but one of them is Rustler Mix, which is a mix compiler. Um, and I think... Oh, Actually, Phoenix has its own compiler. I don't even know what that does uh, specifically. Uh, 
but Rust compiler just exposes a particular interface that you can use to, you know, compile certain types of files and expose them as Elixir uh, functions in a particular way. Um, and Rustler makes that super easy. Mm. And something I should note, and maybe I didn't make this clear before, the interesting thing about NIFS is, you know, I'm writing code in Rust, but I, from the Elixir side, I just call it as if it's a normal Elixir function. You know, as the consumer, I have no idea it's Rust. Right. And that's really cool. What about, like, you're obviously, there's no pattern matching guarantees. You can pass anything into that function head mm-hmm. and, like, something will happen in terms of Rust code. Can you can you guard against that in terms of, like, any success typing or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Ah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so what's cool is that, you know, you get data and it comes in as... Uh, you know, some well-formed type. And then what you have to do is you have to uh, decode it, right? So you call decode and what's cool in Rust is, you know, similar to Elixir, it has a lot of pattern matching. And you so you say on the left side of that assignment, you know, this is the data type that I want to decode this as. Mm-hmm. And if it fails, um, you can pattern match on the failure of that uh, decoding. And so you can handle that error and say, oh, you know, something bad happened. You didn't pass the right type. You know, you're supposed to pass struct foo, you pass struct var. Um, this is actually what I contributed to Rustler, so maybe I can talk about this a little bit. Um, it had a great error message originally, which was just nif panic or nif error, <laughs> uh, which wasn't particularly useful. So what I contributed back to Rustler was uh, the ability for it to say, hey, it failed on this struct with this field, um, which you then can communicate back to Elixir and expose that in logs or whatever. Um, but yeah, you have a lot of control over, you know, how you're decoding things. Um, you know, you can do polymorphic decoding. It could be multiple different types. Um, Rust has really interesting typing uh, around enums. So, you know, if you can have an enum that could be one of N different types, one of which being, you know, like a single enum field or an enum struct or um, an enum that wraps the string. Um, and Rustler makes it really easy to do that if you know just a little bit of Rust. Cool. No, it sounds awesome. Definitely something interesting to check out, but probably not to jump to if you don't need it, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I, in some ways, I feel it's like I wish I could tell you like an interesting project you can implement because I know my former self would have wanted that. Right. Um, you know, image manipulation is something I find cool. Crypto is a good use case for this, but I don't, I really don't think this is something that, you know, you should just be diving into just because you think it's interesting. I mean, you should to learn, but not for your production application, Mm. unless you have a really specific reason. And can you tell us a bit about like what's been bad, right? You said it's a dream stack. (laughs) Where has a dream not quite lived up to expectations? Yeah, I mean, so to start off, it was that, you know, the error handling, which, you know, uh, we helped contribute to make a little bit better. Um, so that that's improved. Um, it's really about the, you know, the interface between Elixir and Rust and, you know, making trade-offs with, you know, how do I understand how, you know, how I should break up work and how things yield back and forth between Elixir. Um, for our particular use case, sometimes it feels like we're throwing so much into Rust. Um, I don't know if this is true or not. Um, I actually talked to James Fish about this a, a couple of months ago when he was visiting New York. Um, I think we have the largest application level NIF in existence, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't have any data to back that up. But um, he, his counter to that was like, oh, well, someone is compiling V8 and running that as a NIF. And I'm like, well, they didn't write that up. 
you know, that was the Google team. Um, but sometimes it feels like we're putting too much into the Rust side mm. and it's like, well, why don't we just build a Rust microservice then? Um, but then you don't get the niceties of Elixir and the concurrency handling and stuff like that. So, um, I don't know. That's kind of specific to our use case. The experience has generally been pretty good. I think what would what could be bad is if, um, let's say we did something that we thought was executing in under one millisecond, and in some cases it just went way over, and now we're impacting th- scheduling, and we're just bringing down the entire availability of our of our system. That's when I think things could get really hairy, and I think that would be quite difficult to mm. debug and address. So have you got like a ton of benchmarks around this stuff as well? Like how do you guard against performance regressions here? Yeah, so one of the things that I've really instilled into our Rust team, uh, we call it the simple AI team internally, our machine learning engineering team, is whenever we build any new algorithm or any new feature, um, we have a suite of benchmarks that we developed as we you know, add new algorithms, add new machine learning algorithms. And so we test against that baseline. So if you're adding a new feature to our code base, you know, you run the benchmarks as part of developing a feature. It's not as elegant as running it, you know, in CI, maybe we'll get there someday, but at least having those benchmarks and being able to compare is a good way of finding uh, performance regressions. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this guy who's huge in the Rust uh, ecosystem. His name, uh, his handle is Burnt Sushi, which is great handle uh he has you might know him through rip grep does anyone use rip grep no no one just me uh it's just like a really fast rust alternative to grep um and he wrote a property testing library so i read uh fred's property testing Mm -hmm. book for erlang and elixir and then i've also been pushing that on our rust developers so that guy burn sushi who wrote a property testing library i believe called prop test or quick check and uh, that's also been very helpful for you know catching issues in our in our Rust code in terms of logic bugs that could lead to performance regressions. Mm. And what about like is there much overhead calling NIFs like in from the Elixir side? Like you talked about it being really fast and clearly mm-hmm. it's fitting your use case really well, but there, there must be some kind of overhead here, right? Yeah. So the the overhead is uh, especially pronounced for. Um, Using dirty NIFs. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the mutexes. And- yeah, because of the mutexes and transferring between threads. I was actually, I did some preparation for nice. this <laughs> this podcast. And I, I thought you might ask that. There was someone, actually I think it was, uh, it Ben Marks? Did mm-hmm. I get his name right? Um, he wrote a blog post about, about this. And actually maybe it wasn't even the particular one I'm thinking of. Doesn't matter. Someone else did a benchmark for me. Um, and actually, no, now it wasn't Ben Marks. But they were using D-Trace. Um, and a Lumos or a Lumnos, uh, some operating system that you can easily run D-Trace with uh, the Beam VM to you know really dig into the performance characteristics of interop between the Beam VM and uh, using NIFs. And you know you're talking about in some cases nanoseconds. Like mm. it's not it's not a, a more like single digit microseconds. But you know this is very very fast code that we're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, of course, if you're reaching for a performance, you might care about that level of, of performance. But for us, it hasn't been an issue. Cool. Uh, I, I guess I have a couple more questions about, like, how you're using Elixir and how things have scaled over there as well. So, um, I mean, first of all, you're using a pretty 
pretty hipster stack, right? I think that's a fair way to put it. You're using... Yeah, the hip stack with the dream stack. (laughs) Yep. Extremely hipster. You're definitely cashing in all of your cool chips, right, on tech right now. So what's what's that been like um, trying to hire folks, Um, especially because I'm guessing there aren't that many people who've worked in Rust previously. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're hiring data scientists to write this as well. Uh, So our data science team is more focused on Python, but... uh, we're actually, interestingly enough, we host weekly Rust lunch and learns internally where our data science team is also learning Rust. We think it's really interesting for the data science team who's doing research to also productionize their own models. Um, with that being said about hiring Rust and Elixir engineers, um, the market's definitely much smaller. So finding people who have that Rust and Elixir experience are definitely uh, more difficult to find than like Java or even like a node Ruby engineer. They're uh, way more prevalent just because of the size and age of the communities. With that being said, I've been finding that the people who come through to me, you know, I phone screen on Elixir and Rust, they're just so like jazzed up and energized about Elixir. You know, I've been telling the the people, the hiring um, uh, people I've been working with who are trying to source candidates for me, um, Find people who are passionate. That's the thing that I go for first is find the people who really would love to work in these languages because they find them so interesting. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can teach you internally about best practices and, you know, how to, you know, be a really senior in these languages. Um, and I think that's important because you're not really going to find, you know, unless if I poach you, Chris, which uh, I think you're pretty happy, you're not going to find too many experienced Elixir engineers. Um, you know, they're definitely out there, but they're, few and far between. So I think it's more about finding people who are passionate and who really want to learn the language. Uh, With that being said, there are a lot of Elixir people in 2019. Um, So I've been pleasantly surprised about the number of people who have been using Elixir, especially in side projects, Mm -hmm. maybe not, you know, in their day job, but who uh, have used Elixir and want to use it more. Nice. Yeah. I I mean, I just want to comment on this really briefly. Like, Looking at the New York community, the last meetup we had, it's really cool to see now we've got like these bigger companies using Elixir, trying to hire loads of Elixir people in New York. And like thinking back to like three, four years ago when we were like all really scrappy, like a few people using it here and everyone was doing side projects, just feels like we're in a different time now. And uh, I don't know, I'm hoping that that kind of plays out across other places in the US. I've seen more places in LA as well coming up and using more Elixir as well. So um, hopefully we're on a bit more of a beginning of a shift where we can grow this language a bit more. And uh, with that being said, Dave, I believe you had a question for us in a in an Elixir talk first having a guest on the show. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Does that mean we have to answer questions that the community poses to us? <laughs> maybe we should we do say we're supposed to it's do it's come that, full but, circle uh, we haven't said that in a long time that's true so from my understanding of listening to the podcast you know prior to this i was supposed to make a github issue which i did not do because <laughs> i you know i'm a elixir talk rebel uh but no i think that there, there's a question i wanted to ask you know I, I went to i went to and i spoke at code code beam back in february um where the elixir ecosystem foundation was announced the Erlang um, being, Ecosystem Foundation. Scott, okay. My mistake, Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. Wow, I've, I've started this off on a really bad foot. <laughs> just didn't want to confuse uh, anyone listening who was like, wait, I thought there's the other one. Is there two? Anyway. 
the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. So it was announced at Codebeam uh, in San Francisco. I believe that was back in February. Uh, and I've been really interested in it because I think it's super important to bring together the larger Beam community and, and you know, tie the initiatives that benefit the larger community together. Uh, with that being said, I work for SimpleBet. We're, um, you know, an Elixir company and we're, you know, we're just getting started. We're early in our roadmap. Um, you know, we're not necessarily making, you know, a ton of money yet. You know, money is, uh, you know, a resource to us. And so we want to spend it wisely. Um, for a company like us who's early but really wants to invest back in the ecosystem in multiple ways, you know, what are some reasons for why we should join the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation? So I'll field this one. Um, and it's kind of funny answering this because, like, we're not the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation podcast. So, I mean, I'm in the foundation. I run the marketing group. But uh, anyway, I just want to, like, dispel the notion that we as Elixir Talk hosts, like, must support thing because it's an Elixir thing or because it's an Erlang thing. And I know that's not what you said. But being the marketing marketing chair, mm-hmm. marketing – what is your title again, Desmond? Uh, funny story. I don't actually have a title, but I have been <laughs> – In typical Desmond fashion. <laughs> I'm a founding member of the foundation and I've been leading the marketing group. So I, I thought you were important. I thought it was a good venue to ask this question for the larger community because I know of your involvement, and that's it's not because you guys have mentioned it before, but because I think, you know, you are you know the right spokesperson for uh, this question. Hopefully, uh, make you know give more information for other uh, people who are in my position who are interested in it and you know want to join the larger ecosystem, but don't necessarily understand, you know, the benefits or, you know, whatever else about joining and, you know, how it benefits the organization. Sure. So I'm happy to answer your question. I'm not like trying to bust your balls here. Um, So I'll answer, here's a concrete thing, first of all, uh, because I hear from young companies, startups that are uh, cash strapped, like I want to give back to the community. I've gotten so much uh, from it, but um what does it mean to support this thing? I don't know if like we have those resources. So sponsorship right now is based on company revenue or expense, whichever is larger. So if you're a young company and you're not making a lot of money, like you're in luck. Now, if you're spending a lot of money, then okay, you might be uh, less out of luck. But the first sponsorship tier is if your company is making or spending less than a million dollars, then your annual sponsorship fee would be two thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. So that's two percent, point two percent. My math is not great right now. I think it's point two percent, which is not a lot of money. If um, your company is between one and five million dollars revenue over expenses, it's five thousand bucks. And if you're making over five million dollars, it's ten thousand dollars a year. So these absolute numbers are not that big. So. Um, I don't know how much money SimpleBet is spending. I'm I'm not sure how much uh, Murumet is spending. Um, but two thousand bucks is not a lot of money, considering what mm-hmm. we spend on your average engineer. So okay, 
But what do you get out of it? Like, why why should you care? Why should you spend any money on the foundation? And I want to point us back to a thing we mentioned just a minute ago about, like, it seems like something's happening in the community. Uh, we can objectively look at the meetups from a couple years ago, and there were fewer people. Uh, there were fewer companies. There were fewer libraries. There were fewer contributors. There were fewer hosting options. There were fewer packages. Uh, Phoenix was a lower version, whatever. Like, things were different then than they are now. And so that's kind of where the foundation comes in, is it's helping to rise the tide for all of us. So... Uh, yeah, supporting the foundation means like having more money for the foundation to give education grants or um, training grants um, or uh, workshops. Or if you're starting up a conference and you want help getting that off the ground, if you want support for a meetup, like petition us, we'll probably help you out. Uh, also, people are working on um, software that everyone benefits from. Uh, who do we know that's working on packaging or security? Uh, I mean, there's a lot that goes into like the ecosystem that we all benefit from and being able to coordinate that helps everyone. So you could hire a developer to work on, uh, the Postgres driver full time at $150,000 a year or whatever. Uh, or you can spend a little bit of money and get a similar benefit that everyone gets to share in. I think that's quite compelling. You know, we, as you know, uh, users are, you know, consuming the overall platform and the ecosystem. You know, we want to help fund, you know, that larger effort and you know things that maybe wouldn't get that love. You know, that Postgres driver, that you know, uh, metrics tool that um, is going to help everyone out in the ecosystem. You know, supporting those things is, I think, quite compelling to me um, because maybe they wouldn't get done otherwise. And maybe, you know, things that are done in isolation for one community are uh, not transferred into the other. And I, that's what I find very interesting about this foundation is uh, spreading that love throughout the ecosystem. Yeah, and it's really a virtuous really. cycle because the more that like us early stage adopters, and I think we're, we could still be considered early stage in 2019, like the more that we are giving back and reinvesting into the ecosystem, uh the better it looks when the bigger fish come around, uh, bigger companies, governments, whatever, you know, when they're evaluating these technologies, they're going to look at the health of the ecosystem. And if there's a foundation in the center of it that can point to hundreds of companies donating uh, time and money and then turning around and generating a lot of community support and output, then uh, that helps change a conversation. It is interesting being a community that's not backed by some big major tech player, right? In 2019. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking about Google backs Go and they do so much work internally with Go. Like they have a team just dedicated to maintaining it, thinking about the language, promoting it, etc. right? And even I know Node doesn't have quite the same, but there are a lot of companies now who've developed around that and it's a more mature ecosystem in some ways. Mm. In some I mean, ways, Bloomberg was a sponsor of Go, so right, go. right, right. And then I think you've got like on the on the other side Sorry, of things, I meant Node. <laughs> yeah, on the other side of things, you've got like React, which has obviously a ginormous sponsor in Facebook, right? But with Elixir, we're kind of trying to distribute that across all of these companies who are benefiting from it. So, um, I guess 
it's going to be hard, right? Like it's going to be hard for all of us to compete. Like we don't, we're not going to have the same kind of budget. But then at the same time, I think like we can also make a big difference as a community. Like even putting in those few thousand dollar sponsorships, it doesn't actually cost that much. And in the scheme of things, as a company, that's like. Like if you're buying catered lunch for everyone every day, just saying, if anyone's doing that, <laughs> companies I used to work for, um, that's like two, four, four thousand dollars a year per employee, something like that, you know? So we're talking about actually not that big amount to actually contribute back to an ecosystem that can really benefit from this as well. So I I, I find this pretty compelling. I mean, one day there's going to be a big company. Like yeah. some elixir company is going to get huge and they're going to throw a ton of money back into this. Well, if we can hire some more elixir developers, maybe that's simple bet. Right. And I'm hoping it's going to be uh Muru. I'm hoping I'm sitting on a billion dollar company right now. I like here, this. Obviously. I like this. So which of our companies is going to be the first one to be a huge elixir company <laughs> to give back to the put, foundation? Let's place a money. bet. Let's place a yeah. bet. There you go. I bet five dollars. Wait, five dollars. <laughs> what is this? I guess I'm not in high school anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, are we even allowed to gamble on air? You know, there's only one way to find out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Ask for forgiveness. Okay, let's do this. All right. So let's put this in. Let's say the team to get the biggest elixir team by the end of 2020. Wait, what do you mean biggest elixir team? Mm. Or should it be most revenue? Mm. This Why is not like both? Valuation? Side wager? So there's a lot of ways that we can measure success here, right? All right. I would prefer to say who can give the biggest donation to the foundation. Oh, oh I love that. Of course he's going to do that. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Marketing chair. Yes. All right. All right. Let's let's do that. We'll, we'll put that in. Are you, are you into it, Dave? All right. Let's do it. Okay. $20 each. I'm dropping my All right. Amount. There it is. <laughs> Great. How do you feel about that? I feel great. Yeah. Give us all okay, your money. We're shaking on it on air. Okay. Listeners, you are our witnesses. Should we uh, clap? Today. Let's clap. They can hear that. Uh, it was out of sync, but it counts. It counts. it counts. There we go. So you heard it here first. The first podcast bet. Probably not, but maybe mm-hmm. first podcast bet with someone who also works in a betting company. Yeah. yeah. Call up your product there managers. We- <laughs> <So> untap <laughs> podcast betting market out there. Oh, Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I hope more people can get involved and we'll put links today to the show notes. And thank you, Dave, for asking that question back to us as well. Always happy to have more people from around the ecosystem and the community asking questions of us as well. Mm-hmm. Dave just closed his laptop lid and there's a, an, a competing podcast sticker oh, no. on it. Oh, I should put it up. Oh my oh. goodness. Oh. Yeah. So I'm going to give you an Alexa Talk sticker. Um, you got to cover the okay. old now that you have to put on there now. So it's great. Um, but I think that about wraps it up for today. Um, been a great show, Dave. Thank you so much for having you on board. And this has been wonderful. It's uh, it's so awesome to hear more about Rust and Elixir. Um, where can people reach you if they want to chat to you online? Well, my fifth grade username, DavyDog187 uh, on Twitter and GitHub. Um, that'd probably be the best way to reach me. Or if you're interested in... Uh, you know, doing Elixir and Rust in the sports betting industry, Dave at simplebet.io. Awesome. We'll uh, put links to all of this in the show notes today. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show, Dave. And thank you very much, everyone else, for listening. As always, this has been Elixir Talk. Um, if you like this show, 
or anything else we've said in previous episodes, please give us a rating for wherever you're getting this podcast today. We would massively appreciate it. And if you could tell your friends, that would be great. Great. So you can get in touch with us as well at twitter.com forward slash Elixir Talk, or you can open up a GitHub issue, which Dave did not do today, at github.com forward slash Elixir Talk forward slash Elixir Talk. So thank you very much as always for listening. Dave, you know the outro, right? Keep elixiring. No, oh, whoa, no, whoa, whoa. wait. You no. dropped the gun. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> totally wrecked it. All right. We got to oh, do no. it all in sync. That's oh, the key man. part. But at least he knew the outro. Uh, so we often have guests who don't know. So it's very good. Oh, wow. <laughs> all right. So here we go, folks. Thank you very much again. And keep, keep elixiring. elixiring. <laughs>